Hey, welcome to the Plant Yourself Podcast. I'm your host, Howard Jacobson. Before we get to today's show, a quick reminder that this podcast is free for everyone and supported by those who can afford it. So uh, if you have found this podcast a useful companion during 2020, and you'd like to see it continue through 2021, I would invite you to go to plantyourself.com slash gift. If you are in a position where you have the means to support something that means something to you and hopefully uh, you think is doing good in the world. You can use PayPal or Patreon. You can make a one-time contribution or become an ongoing sustaining patron of the show. And if funds are too tight for you to show your appreciation in a monetary sense, you can still leave a review of the Plant Yourself podcast on whatever platform you listen to podcasts. That also helps us a great deal. All right, on to today's episode. This is the Plant Yourself podcast. I'm Howard Jacobson of plantyourself.com. Today's guest, Eric O'Gray, has a simple story that is changing the world, and it starts out common enough. He's overweight, sick, depressed, avoiding social contact as much as possible, chowing down on two Domino's Meat Lovers pizzas a night for dinner, hadn't been on a date in 15 years, spending a grand a month on prescription meds, and his insurance company was ponying up the rest. His doctor told him, invest in a cemetery plot. You're going to need it sometime in the next five years. And the turning point was when Eric was on an airplane and they couldn't find a seat extender for him. And the man in the next seat over complained and said, I'm going to miss my plane because you're too fat. And that night, Eric prayed to God to kill him. And you know how the universe works in mysterious ways. The next day on CNN, Eric caught Bill Clinton's interview with Wolf Blitzer, where Clinton revealed his vegan diet to the world. And Eric noticed that Clinton looked healthy for the first time ever, really. And that gave Eric hope that he too could change. So despite decades and dozens of failed diets, Eric made an appointment with a local vegan naturopath. And she did two things. One, predictable. The other, very much not. The predictable one, of course, is she told him to change his diet. And the out-of-the-box suggestion, she told him, adopt a dog. With truly poetic irony, Eric rescued an obese middle-aged dog, and he said, well, we'll figure this out together. The rest of the story is compelling enough that it has appeared on NPR, Rachel Ray, Oprah.com, Today.com, and in a six-minute video that's been viewed over 50 million times. So I think you're really going to enjoy his story. So without further ado, Eric O'Gray, welcome to the Plant Yourself podcast. Well, thanks, Howard. I appreciate your having me. It's great to meet you. Likewise. Likewise. I, I came across your story, I think, probably on Forks Over Knives, there was a uh, a feature. And then, yes. I, then I just fo followed it up and, uh, and, you know, like everybody else, I cried. <laughs> well, thank you very much. I appreciate it. And, uh, and yeah, it's a, it's a wonderful, inspiring story. And I'm really looking forward to, to kind of un unpacking it and getting to know you a little better. Awesome. So let's let's start with just the for folks who who don't know you and your story. Can you give us like the the elevator speech? Yeah, I was um, in 2010. I was 51 years old, and this is before the movie Forks Over Knives came out. I was 320 pounds, five foot ten inches. Uh, my waist was 52 inches, 
and my shirts were 4XL. I had type 2 diabetes, was taking insulin for that. My cholesterol was between 300 and 400. I had my blood pressure was off the charts. And I tried and failed every diet plan, every market ever, ever marketed in the United States and every gimmick uh, associated with that. I was taking over $1,000 in medications per month. And that's um, what I was paying out of pocket, not uh, my employer was paying on top of that. So I was taking uh, uh, insulin, statins, medications designed to mitigate the side effects of other medications. And my doctor um, in one of these meetings told me to purchase a, a cemetery plot because I would likely need one in the next five years. So I went through a process of qualifying and scheduling bariatric surgery. And I had, uh, was about a month away from doing that when I happened to hit a real low point. And it was shown in the movie by the uh, returning from the air from the airplane flight, and I happened to see the very next day after that, uh, former President Bill Clinton being interviewed by Wolf Blitzer on CNN, hmm. and, and the subject was one of the things that Wolf brought out was uh, how great uh, Bill Clinton looked. His face was oval instead of round. He'd obviously lost a bunch of weight. He didn't have the big bags under his eyes, and he looked healthy probably for the first time that I'd ever seen him. I mean, he actually looked really good. So in exploring that, Bill Clinton started talking about a plant-based diet, and that was something that I'd never heard before because I had tried Atkins, I'd tried South Beach, I'd tried Nutrisystems, I'd tried everything on the market. And what I'd, um, what I'd found on each of these diets is that it was true I could lose some weight on them, generally about 40 pounds or so, at which point I'd plateau. And because none of those diets were really sustainable for the long term, none of them could really be a lifestyle. They're all temporary gimmicks to lose weight. <clears throat> I eventually would fail, backslide, and then uh, not only gain the regain the weight that I lost, but uh, maybe an extra 10% or so. So it was a, I was a, a snowball rolling downhill, getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Hmm and didn't really have an end in sight until I saw the interview with, uh, with President Clinton. Wow. So, and in the, uh, in the film, you, you, the, the catalyst, the low point you talk about is a guy basically on the plane being really irritated at you for, for delaying him because they didn't have a uh, seatbelt expander for you. I, right. I delayed the flight by about a half an hour, causing a whole bunch of people on the flight to uh, miss their connections, including the gentleman next to me, because they didn't have a seat belt extension, so I couldn't buckle in. And this is, uh, I, I guess now, I fly a lot on business. I'm in sales. And really, at the start of the flight now, I see flight attendants walking down the aisle with a whole bunch of them strapped across their arms. People are just getting that much bigger. I guess six years ago when, when this happened to me, it wasn't as common, but it's much more common now. So now I think that they're in a point that they never run out of seatbelt extensions, but it, it's really because they have so many. But um, it, when, when it happened to me, they didn't really have any extra on the plane and they didn't have any at the, uh, the desk outside with the flight attendant. So they had to really wait until they could get some off another plane and that really delayed the flight. So that's what the problem was. So after that, after all that, and then uh, seeing the uh, the CNN piece, I really decided, you know, this is, is, is there, can I try this? Will that work for me also? Is this something that I could do to avoid bariatric surgery? Because I really didn't want to get the majority of my stomach cut out um, to solve the problem. 
So I, I did a little bit of research again on Google and I contacted and consulted with a local vegan naturopathic doctor whom I determined knew about plant-based diet. So I went in and I met with her and the fascinating thing was she taught me the difference between uh, NDs and MDs and that difference is typically with an MD, they're going to have, you know, according to the whole financial situation associated with the medical industry, they're going to have five to 10 minutes to talk to you generally uh, on an MD and a consultation. And what they're doing is they're looking for generally to prescribe medication for your symptoms. Whereas an ND is going to look for the underlying cause or the root problem and then uh, attempt to fix that root problem rather than just the symptoms. So for example, if you think about uh, a water spigot and you turn that water spigot on and water is flowing out of the spigot, you can mop uh, up that water until the end of time and you're never going to solve the problem or you can just turn off the spigot. So that's what my, uh, my ND uh, did, for you, did for me. And as part of my consultation and process with her, she spent uh, two, three hours in the first meeting with me and we went and we talked about like a whole lot of things. So she wanted to know not just about my life and my obesity and, and my health problems, but she also wanted to know a lot about my personal life and, you know, what I was doing. And what she determined was that I, or, you know, is the truth at the time, I'd become very reclusive. The bigger you get, the more uncomfortable you become, the more that you feel personal shame, the more that you feel the eyes of people looking at you in judgment and the less you want to go outside. So it's, it's, a, it's, it's something that continues and just uh, uh, perpetuates itself, obesity. So what she prescribed to me was very unusual and something I hadn't heard before. She told me to uh, adopt a rescue dog. That was the first thing that she did to that she prescribed to me. And I asked her, because I'd never had a pet before. So I asked her, you know, does it have to be a dog? And she said, well, have you ever seen anybody walk a cat? And I said, no, but I, well, I think I've seen it done on TV. And she just looked at me very sternly, unamused. And she repeated the fact that I had to go out and uh, get a dog. So she also gave me some meal plans and some uh, recipes that, because she was, uh, she was Indian or from, her name is Dr. Preeti Kolkarni from Cupertino, California. So she gave me a bunch of meal plans and, and we talked about everything and, and what I was going to do. So I, I became, and she also made me commit to coming and seeing her every week for six months. And this is part, I think, of what really was successful and what worked out for me. Because had I not done that, you know, and, and if I didn't have an accountability partner in the form of a, a dog that I rescued, I likely would not have succeeded because this is a, a plant-based diet that she put me on, a whole foods plant-based diet. So no processed food. Everything that I was eating was in the form that it grew in nature and I was preparing it and she she gave me like she helped me learn how to cook and she gave me like a lot of really interesting advice on on how to prepare foods and how to make things taste good starting just from whole plants and how to make meals that could look and taste like things that I was used to eating but I had to, you know, pretty much go, go cold turkey with the exception of she gave me uh, an allowance of six cans of tuna fish that I could, uh, I could start with. But after those, huh. I was going to be 100% plant-based. So I, I became committed to uh, 
I did commit to her plan, which was weekly follow-up visits that included, they started out with a weigh-in so I could see exactly where I was versus the previous week. And also um, uh, really a conversation about what worked and what didn't so that we can continue to fine-tune the program as I went along. And again, this was even before the movie Forks Over Knives came out. So I I followed her instructions to the letter because I really didn't want to have this bariatric surgery. And I went down and I did a little research and I um, uh, found a place locally to me. I lived in San Jose at the time. I'm now in Spokane, but I found a place in San Jose, Humane Society, Silicon Valley, that... uh, help people find the perfect animal for them. So the perfect animal for me in my time, in my mind at the time, I was thinking about just, you know, just a really sweet small dog that didn't really make any, any noise and didn't shed and didn't cause allergies and was just, you know, fully trained and already, you know, completely taken care of. So I was thinking about something like maybe a, an eight pound golden retriever that doesn't exist. So, <laughs> so I, I called her. I, so I called down and I was, I was uh, connected with their placement department. <clears throat> and the person on the other end of the phone was very interested and asked me a huge number of questions. And I said, you know, I'm, I'm looking for an obese middle-aged dog. So we would have something in common. And we talked about that and asked why. And I said also, and this sounds horrible now. And I, I felt really bad about it later, but I said, you know, I think I'd like an older dog because it's less of a commitment. Mm. So she she said, I think I have the perfect dog for you. So I went down there and just having this vision of a poodle or something going through in my mind. And I went down there and she let in just this really scruffy, unattractive 75-pound dog that was looked to be about 25 pounds overweight. And he just really was looking down on the floor and he just wasn't happy in his life at all. And he just looked very depressed and unhappy. And then he looked up at me and he, he just goes, really? Huh. Is, is this, is this what my, is this my future looking at me? And I looked at him with pretty much about the same eyes, <clears throat> but the lady at uh, humane society, Silicon Valley, and her name was Cassandra helped me understand that, you know, that dog and I were in the same situation that dog needed somebody to help him lose weight. And I need somebody to help me lose weight. And we, since we were in the same situation, you know, we had a huge amount in common and we might as well do it together. So I adopted that dog and I uh, uh, named him Petey and Petey and I went home. And at first he didn't really know what to make of me. And I didn't know what to make of him because I'd never had a pet before. And over a couple of days, you know, we both started out on opposite sides of the room, but over a couple of days, um, he slept in his, you know, somewhere else in my home and I, I slept in my bed. But on the third night, he jumped in bed with me and we became best friends after that. Huh. Every, so he, so he, from then on, he, just, we were in the he, same. he took the first step. He did. He, he took the first step. So we started, we started walking uh, every day for, according to her instructions, for a half an hour, twice a day. And I was on a strict uh, vegan plant-based diet, so no vegan junk food. I mean, really following, I guess, the, uh, the current uh, work on this that I recommend to people is the starch solution by Dr. John McDougall that would really lay out uh, a whole food plant-based diet with no oil and no sugar. 
for weight loss. Just tremendously healthy. I think it's what the body was meant to do. So I started losing magically five pounds per week. The first week I lost over 10 pounds and I thought, man, this is a miracle. Well, it's really because half that weight the first week was you know, water weight loss because I wasn't adding sodium and I just kind of like flushed out a lot of water. But I mean, that was tremendous motivation when you could lose 10 pounds your first week on a diet. I thought, wow, this is, this is, this is a miracle. So every week after that, I started losing five pounds. And then as I approached my optimal weight, it went from four, three, two, one. And in 10 months, I dropped from about 330, 340 pounds all the way down to uh, 180. So it truly was a miracle. And it was, it felt, it felt effortless. Well, the first two months, there was quite a bit of transition the first two months. So I, at the time, like I said, was 51 years old and I had never eaten a meal or I could not recall ever having eaten a meal in my entire life that did not include some form of animal protein like meat and cheese and, and dairy, etc. And it's as I pointed out in the uh, New York Times uh, rebuttal piece that I wrote recently, all those foods are intended to be as addictive as possible. All the processed foods that I was eating, like the Domino's pizzas and, and just all the drive-through crap that I was eating, you know, the modern food science associated with those uh, foods are that they design them to be as addictive as possible. They have focus groups that you know, the, the formulas, the recipes that they go with are those that people have the most difficulty putting down and binge on and overeat. So by getting off of all that and just eating the foods in the, the form that they naturally came out of the ground and then, but, you know, preparing them in ways that are still tasty and, and, and satisfying, I found that I was able to eat uh, at, well, after about a, a two months of getting over the cravings and the addiction of the previous food that I ate, I transitioned and I actually started liking my new food better than my old food. And it seemed to me that what I'd eaten before was now, now seemed gross. My palate changed and I just really liked the, the, the new food that I was eating. And I didn't feel the need to binge on it. And it's like when I was eating, ordering Domino's, what would happen, Domino's pizzas, I would order two extra large meat lovers pizzas and they'd be delivered to the, the, the door. And the reason I'd order two at a time was with the intent of, okay, I'm going to eat one tonight, like really a whole extra large pizza by myself, yes. And then I'm going to save one to tomorrow. So I'd eat one, but then the problem is I'd take a slice off the second and then a second slice and a third slice. And I go, well, you know, I might as well eat the second one too. So I was eating two extra large Domino's pizzas a night. And the difference between that, what I was doing before and the new diet was that I never felt the urge to, you know, completely stuff myself like that. I got to the point that I was satisfied and I go, okay, I'm done eating. And when I was hungry again, I'd eat again. And just to the point that I was satisfied. So that's what uh, worked for me. And that combined with good, healthy nutrition put me in a situation that within um, about three months, I'd gotten off of insulin. And shortly after that, I had no more need for any medications. I to this day, I, I, the only thing in my medicine cabinet is, is some Advil for, um, you know, in case I have a headache or something, but that I rarely use that. Mm -hmm. So I got off all medications, my, my weight corrected. Um, and just really every part of my life changed. It's, it's hard to describe, but you know, when you, when you lose that much weight, 
Um, really, every measurement on your body changes. My hat size, I lost, you know, over a full size on my hat. My shoe size dropped by a size and a half. I mean, everything. It's crazy. Mm. So, so, so I'd love, I'd love to uh, um, sort of put a pin in the, the story at this point, because there's a lot more that happens, you know, once, once you go on this journey. But I'm, I'm curious, at one point uh, in one of the videos I watched, you talked about like you had to solve the underlying problem behind your obesity. Right. And, you know, the, clear, clearly, the, you know, the food is part of it. But there was there was more. Can you kind of like, you know, look back on your life and kind of give, you know, what, what's what's your sense of what led you to to be eating that way and weighing that much and getting more and more reclusive? Well, I'd be, I'd um, I'd grown up kind of in a broken home, and I had always been a loner for the most part, and I'd never really had close associations with other people. So I, I just found myself, especially the larger I became, the more uncomfortable I was. Less I wanted to go outside, the fewer friends and acquaintances that I had, and I had a job, and I still have a job that involves being the remote sales rep, uh, the sale, the field sales rep for a remote manufacturer. So you can, I really work out of my house anyway, which really amplifies the reclusiveness. And because I, I didn't, you know, at this, when, as you age, you start having fewer and fewer friends, unless you maintain really friendships and try to develop new friendships. Suddenly you find a place, or I did that myself in a place that I didn't really have any friends I hadn't been on a date in 15 years because I, I was physically really not really appealing to, to women. And I was just all by myself. So the underlying problem with my obesity was I had no incentive to go outside and I'd really lost contact with society. And so what, what cured that and what the ND really got right and really figured out was that the dog, because I'd never had a pet before, this was a way to regain a relationship with a creature. You know, if I didn't have one wounded with a humor with a human, this was a bridge on how to form a relationship and a bond with a creature that would want me to live, that that would cause me to want to live and to improve myself again. So this was the first time in my life that I'd ever experienced complete and absolute love and trust from another creature. Petey loved me absolutely and unconditionally and, and, and taught me the true meaning of friendship and, um, you know, really was completely selfless towards me. And all this like dawned on me. He thought that I was the greatest person on earth. And so I decided to become the person that he believed that I was. And all that caused me to want to live again and really kind of gave me the motivation that I needed to succeed and this helped Petey out also. He lost 25 pounds and he became a really happy, proud dog. So we would walk around and we would meet people and we would suddenly start meeting women that were walking dogs. And, you know, then we'd be going on double dates with <laughs> women and their dogs. And, you know, Petey really became um, kind of like my wingman. And, and really he was the catalyst that, Oh, you have a beautiful dog. Well, thank you so much. And then, you know, strike up a conversation. So, uh, that the underlying prop, uh, the underlying cause with my obesity was the fact that I'd become really reclusive and I no longer cared about living. 
And having the relationship with Petey caused me to care about living again because I cared about Petey and I wanted to be the person who he thought that I was and I wanted to do good things for him and make sure that he had everything in life that he had given me. Boy, this the story goes so deep and it, it kind of reminds me of like one of these, um, you know, like grim fairy tales where like the fairy godmother gives you this gift that's that's like a really weird gift that you don't understand at first. So it's almost like you were unwilling to um, to love yourself, to have high regard for yourself. And so the creature who was bequeathed to you was like your your analog in dog form. Like, you know, the way you described it, like sort of overweight, middle-aged, scruffy, un, unattractive, like, you know, like it was like looking in a mirror and, see, I think, and I think, seeing the I mirror. That's, suddenly, that's, a per, that's a perfect metaphor. And, and I look at Petey like... Uh, he was, um, I look at Petey like he was an angel and, uh, angels don't always need to be in human form. And this was my gift. Mm. This was what I needed to, um, uh, it, 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 you know, when I hit bottom, I, I basically, I wanted to die and I actually asked God to kill me. And then the next day, all this started happening. Wow. And I think it's it's something that people maybe don't don't understand about that kind of overeating of these these highly palatable foods is that they're you know you see people eating that way it's like oh they they love a good time right they they're they're all about the the pleasure the hedonism but it's not about that is it no it's, it, it's not it's it's about an addiction and so here's what I because I. I'm attempting to launch a career as a public speaker doing uh, keynote and inspirational speaking just on this subject. And it's my strong opinion that it's just like cigarettes. You know, cigarettes don't accomplish a purpose. They're all that they do is harm people. And the food industry, the modern food industry is the same thing. They're not serving a public interest. What they're really geared towards doing, modern food science is geared towards um, creating addictive foods that, that generally harm people. And, and I can say this because as part of the process, you read the, the New York Times rebuttal that I, I wrote, right? Yep, yep. I wanted to talk to you about that. I think that's, so, that's where I think so, I found you. Yeah, so part of, the, part of, the, part of my process in, in really becoming curious and wanting to know how, how could I lose that much weight that quickly? How could my body snap back like a rubber band that quickly just by changing the foods that I ate. So it gave me a really curious, a huge curiosity in terms of nutrition science and everything else. I'm a, a former attorney and I'm used to doing like research and getting really detailed and granular and trying to figure things out. So as part of an, a self-generated education process, what I did was I took the entire first year's curriculum of science and medical classes over about a year and a half at a community college in night school. I, I was fascinated by this just because I really wanted to know more. And I wanted to be able to explain this to people in ways that I would have credibility rather than just generally talking about things. I like to uh, cite, uh, uh, and, and so let me just explain. So I took the first year's curriculum in the whole year worth of um, uh, chemistry, organic chemistry, anatomy and physiology, biology, um, nutrition, nutrition science, and physics. And what I learned 
in the nutrition science class was exactly this. They, they, they talk, nutrition science is, or food science, pardon me, is, is a, a, a discipline that is designed to, with marketing, to create new foods and formulations to market, to maximize the amount of money that they make on those. And what they're doing is they're making the foods as desirable and as addictive as possible. Like, for example, the New York Times came out with something in December last year that was talking about um, uh, dairy and specifically casein being as addictive as opiates. Right. Now, you, you got this curriculum from, from in med school? No, no. So I went to a community college and I, just my local community college, uh, I, I College in Cupertino, California. And I, I just took all these classes in night school over about a year and a half. Uh-huh. I see. But it was, it was, the, it was, the, it was the, uh, the undergraduate curriculum in, sort of in, pr- uh, in medical and science classes for somebody who wanted to, you know, it was to go into medical school is, is the classes that I took. Gotcha. So you're, you're basically uh, simulating pre-med. Exactly. So what I what, it, what this caused me to do with my legal background, uh, and I was on a law review at my law school, I went to Emory Law School. Th- what this allowed me to do was I became very comfortable reading medical and scientific journals and uh, allowed me to be able to talk and speak about these and write about these things it, to the point that, you know, as you know, and I, I know from your reading and your books are excellent and I appreciate your, your writing them, as you know, there are thousands and thousands, tens and tens and tens of thousands of medical and scientific articles, articles that, that often conflict with each other. One says one thing, another says another thing. So which is true? Well, you know, you got to kind of like look, look all the way down. It's, it's what I'm telling anybody is that anybody that wants to refute anything that I say about the wholesomeness and uh, of a plant, a whole food plant-based diet, and, and this is what our bodies will be optimized on if we eat versus the uh, the processed foods and just the junk that we're being served by the food industry. Anybody that wants to, because these articles come up in the newspaper, like this New York Times article, and what happened when this New York Times article came out, the reason that I found out about it was a couple of my friends that I've been talking to and trying to get uh, to encourage to go on to a whole food plant-based diet, they looked at that New York Times article and they said, see, that is medical proof that it is futile to attempt to lose weight. There's no hope for me, so I'm going to stop trying. I'm just going to be obese the rest of my life, live a shortened, miserable lifespan, and die. And that was their solution after reading that New York Times article, which made me extremely sad and broke my heart, which is why I wrote this uh, rebuttal article for my site and and what I what I needed to explain to people is. Why don't you t- say, say a little bit about what the New York Times article was about and what it said? To give us some context. Okay, so the New York Times article was about uh, uh, the gist was most people who lose weight will regain all or most all or most of the weight that they lost, and it was based upon a study in the journal Obesity, uh, focusing on the results experienced by participants in the 2009 season of the Biggest Loser television program. Um, right, which so is the, the, the gold standard of weight loss, right? <laughs> exactly. So these people um, had been sequestered in a, in a ranch uh, over the period of their weight loss where they uh, were uh, worked out for seven hours per day, burning 8,000 to 9,000 calories per day and eating <laughs> reduced calorie meals 
that you know were featured uh, animal products, including eggs and chicken, and maybe like a little bit of broccoli, but really a reduced portion of the standard American diet. So, you know, they had one guy lost two hundred and thirty-nine pounds, and he won the uh, he won the deal. But within six years uh, of of the participants in that two thousand and nine episode, fifteen out of sixteen had regained much, if not all, of the weight they lost was some weighing even more than before the program. So the study came out and said uh, that, okay, they, they then at six years, they went and tested them all, their uh, basal metabolic rate, and they determined from some testing that their basal metabolic rate dropped and that to maintain, like, for example, with one guy who was now over 100 pounds higher than when the program ended, he had to eat 800 calories a day less than a typical man his size just to avoid additional weight gain. And then they had anecdotal... So, so when you say basal metabolic rate, just to d- define that, you mean sort of if you sit there and don't do anything, your body's yes. burning calories. And these right. people who had had this tremendous weight loss through this uh, Biggest Loser regimen now were less efficient at it. So they right. so that now for the rest of their lives they would need to basically stay on a version of the Biggest Loser, eating yes. e- eating much less than they wanted and exercising much more than they wanted. I believe that the uh, doctor associated with that said that uh, recommended that they would have to do strenuous hard workouts for at least nine hours a week to maintain their same weight, along with eating a reduced calorie uh, portion control kind of diet, which is crazy. Yeah. So, but that's, you know, that's what they found. Yeah. So um, the BMR, the basal metabolic rate is say, if you sit on your couch all day long and you don't move, um, and you just, uh, decide that you're not gonna, you're not going to do anything exactly how many calories are you going to burn over the period of that day, including the amount that you sleep. So they're saying that of everybody, uh, 800 of, of the, the one guy that was the issue was the example in the article, they're saying that he had to eat 800 calories less than a typical man his size and to burn the actual amount that he was um, uh, needed just to avoid additional weight gain, he would then have to reduce the amount of food that he ate. So he would he would experience deprivation and craving. And that was the only way that it would work for him. And as we, uh, I mean, as I know, based upon my experience, that's just flat out impossible. It's just never going to work. It goes back to the 30, 35 different weight loss programs that I tried and failed on, which are all based upon like some crazy thing like Atkins, only eat meat with maybe just a tiny amount of broccoli. It just, it isn't going to work. It's not like a sustainable thing that you can actually practice and feel comfortable on and have it seem effortless for the rest of your life. Mm-hmm. It doesn't work. So what my response was to them was they're doing it wrong. If they had done what I'd done, which is to use a whole food plant-based diet, it would completely change the equilibrium in the system, right? So the equili- equilibrium in the system would change. And rather than your body trying to fight you and putting out the, the craving signals so that you would <clears throat> eat more, want to eat more food and you know one of the one of the um, the examples was the guy was <clears throat> the guy was saying that uh, his he he was he was upset because when he opened a bag of chips thinking that he he would only eat like a few like five chips he would eat the whole bag and then he thought that that would meant that weight loss was futile because he was always going to be like that but see that bag of chips is not normal food that bag of chips was designed 
to make you want to eat the whole bag. So there's two ways that you can look at this. You can either fight that urge. You could go on a losing battle or you could go on a winning battle of changing the equilibrium and going on a whole food plant-based diet, not experiencing any cravings. And instead of experiencing a reduction in your BMR, you get about a 20% increase in your BMR according to generally accepted peer-reviewed medical science by going on a whole food plant-based diet. So you're increasing your BMR and you're not getting the cravings and you're just eating until you're satisfied and you're losing the weight that you're carrying in excess and you get down to the point that your weight is optimized like me and then it stays like that. So six years later, I'm, I'm still at the same weight. Actually, I'm, I put on a little bit of muscle, so I'm about maybe five to 10 pounds heavier than when I first lost the weight because I started <clears throat> running and doing some other things. But, you know, my waist size has been 33 inches the entire time, dropped from 52 to 33, and it stayed like that for six years now. Hmm. So do you think that the, the problem was just that when they were done, they were eating this, you know, the standard American meat-based diet? Or do you think there was something about the biggest loser process itself that messed them up for life? Do you think that those people, if they switch to your diet and my diet right now, that their basal metabolic rate would recover? Or do you think they've been ruined? No, I, th- you know, I, it's hard for me to say because the, the, it has to be a massive shock on your body to go from a sedentary lifestyle that you've allowed your weight to creep up to between three and 400 pounds, which was the average for the men on the show, um, it has to be a shock going from that, from being a couch potato, uh, Domino's eat, pizza eating person to the next day working out for seven hours a day and being on these, these dietitian ish kind of portion controlled diets that have six ounces of chicken and then like some cheese and then like a little bit of, uh, uh vegetables off to the side. So I don't know whether that broke their body I, I do, or, or had some like long-term permanent damage. I, I can't really comment on that. I don't know about that. But what I do know is that whether or not that's true, if they went from what they're on now, which is an attempt to stay on a reduced portion control diet that includes animal products, if they went to a whole food plant-based diet, they would maximize their chance to increasing their health, improving, you know, really maximizing their longevity and achieving their optimal weight effortlessly for the first time in their life with the only cost of this entire program being some transition and and getting used to, for about a two-month period, getting used to their new diet. And let me talk about that transition. Anybody who has ever, and I talk about this a lot, anybody who has ever quit smoking knows, and I I did, I smoked for 25 years, two packs of Camel non-filters a day. Quitting smoking is way harder, way harder by a degree of, I think, 10 times than transitioning to a whole food plant-based diet. So anybody who's ever succeeded at quitting smoking or a substance abuse problem or an alcohol problem has a huge advantage when it comes to getting into a whole food plant-based diet because they know what it is to overcome addiction and it's going to be a lot easier for them to do that. And they're going to have a much greater chance of success. Hmm. Now, what, you know, one thing I hear from people who are who have struggle with eating is that in some ways it's harder than alcohol or smoking because you can quit those cold turkey, but you you still have you have to eat something. And there's so many you know, ah. gray areas around, well, the sauce or the dressing. And, and, no, but that's true. 
that's true. What you're saying is absolutely the case and true with respect to, um, you know, going from the standard American diet to less of the standard American diet. That, that's huh. absolutely true. But when you go from the standard American diet to the whole food plant-based diet, you're completely changing that. So you're still eating, but you're able to eat as much as you want without any kind of like thought about calorie restriction or portion control because you don't you no longer have the urge to overeat and gorge and stuff yourself and as you know you can fill your stomach with 500 calories of plants uh, because uh, uh, carbohydrates are four calories per gram oils and fats are nine calories per gram so you know the, the meat and the crap associated with that is roughly twice the calories of, of the plants. So you, 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 can, you can experience satiety or you can, you, you can be satisfied with much fewer calories and you don't then have that urge and that craving to continue to overstuff yourself. So it's a completely different situation. Mm. Uh, yeah, let's, let's talk about that for a second because there, there's a debate that I'm seeing online in the plant-based, in the whole food plant-based community about whether you really can eat ad libitum as much as you want. And there's a, a lot of people who are saying, you know, no, you still need your meal plans. You still need to, to pay attention. And others are, are saying, you know, especially sort of the McDougal starch camp, that no, you really, the, the goal is to eat as much as you want of, right. so, of these foods. What, you, what, you, what was your experience? Let's talk about the degrees of, of being uh, vegan, right? So there's lots of different kinds of vegans. There's uh, vegans, there's animal rights vegans, there's environmental vegans, there's health vegans. When somebody asks me what kind of vegan I am, I tell them I'm every kind of vegan. <laughs> but I prefer to call myself whole uh, uh, plant-based now uh, just to avoid the negative connotations and the arguments and people you know, springing bacon jokes on you and things like that. It just seems like plant-based is a lot less threatening to people, a lot less confrontational. But within the vegan community... <clears throat> Those who are not attempting to follow to maximize their health are eating vegan junk food or they're using oil and they're cooking and they're, they're doing things. They're, they're doing things that they cannot – that aren't really a whole lot healthier than um, eating uh, meat and animal products. So by going on the McDougal Starch Solution Program – which, which is I'm, I'm on and which I advocate to everybody. Anytime that anybody asks me what to do, how do I start, I tell them to do three things. Watch Forks Over Knives. The best documentary ever made about a, a whole food plant-based diet. Number two, watch uh, Plant Pure Nation, which is kind of a follow-up to that movie and really reinforces a lot of what they talk about and has a lot of useful information. And number three, watch Cowspiracy, which really is going to kind of cement that. And then buy three books. Um, Dr. Gregor's How Not to Die, uh, Dr. McDougal's The Starch Solution, and then also I recommend to people the Forks Over Knives cookbook as a way to get started because it has really nice, easy-to-follow recipes that are won't take more than 20 to 30 minutes to prepare anything, use common ingredients, and also do not use any added oils or sugars. <clears throat> so what I'm saying is, is my experience I eat as much as I want and I never gain weight because I follow the Dr. McDougall plan of, of veganism. So those who are, uh, you know, and let's talk about this for a second. I know a lot of people who have gone vegan and gained weight. And the reason that they've gained weight is because the first time in their life, they're really wanting to 
be a good vegan and learn all these vegan cooking techniques. So they're baking for the first time in their life. And they're, they're creating extremely calorie dense foods that are using, you know, vegan butter and margarine and, and all this kind of stuff. And they're eating, you know, coconut dream ice cream and things like that. And those are extremely calorie dense foods that are not going to help anybody lose weight. So they're doing it wrong by using whole foods the plants, the way that they came out of the ground, and I, I can make stuff that looks exactly like, you know, the lasagnas that people would normally eat. And I'm using maybe a little bit of cashew cheese on them and, and various different things. But um, I'm not, I can make things that look and taste like what normal people eat or people on the standard American diet. And I could have friends over and have a dinner party and everybody go, wow, that's excellent food. And then I spring it on them at the end that you just ate a vegan meal. Ha ha. Because had I told them that up front, they probably would have politely declined the opportunity and and would have never really had the experience to say that, wow, that was good food. It's vegan food. It's made from whole whole plants. And, you know, I really enjoyed it. So why isn't everybody eating that? Because this is not difficult to do. Mm. But I want to push a little bit about the idea of unlimited, even for someone who eats the starch solution. So when you were eating your two Domino's meat lovers pizzas in a night. I'm imagining at some point you just felt like really, really stuffed, even while like eating to the point of extreme discomfort. Was that? Yeah, absolutely. Can't you, can't you still do that? If I mean, couldn't you? I I could if I wanted to, but now I don't have the desire to, because when it's like I said, with those two extra large pizzas, I would start out and I would just like go for it. And I couldn't stop eating, even though the discomfort in my stomach. See, there's a there's about a 15 minute to a half an hour delay between the point that you have completely overstuffed yourself to the uh, at the point of extreme discomfort, physical discomfort, and the point that you actually feel that extreme physical discomfort. So in the meantime, while you're stuffing yourself, before that extreme discomfort uh, catches up with you, and it's it's like a, a a delayed reaction, you're continuing to eat. And because the food is, has got such addictive uh, properties associated with it and the craving is so strong, you just continue to eat and you can't put it down and you gorge and gorge and gorge and gorge. And what I'm saying is that does not happen on a whole food plant-based diet. You, you're eating and because the food is uh, less dense and you're, you're chewing it and it's taking you, you know, you're eating it and you're putting more in your stomach and your stomach is filling up. You, you become satisfied and there's no craving associated with wanting to binge and continuing to stuff yourself. So you never get to that point. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. So you, you and Petey hit it off on day three. You walked half an hour, twice a day. At some point, you started doing more than just walking, right? Yeah. So I want to make it really clear because I am, I do a fairly extreme sports now, but <laughs> I, I, I didn't start out that way. So every time that, you know, I talk, because uh, I do all this running stuff now and this long distance running, and I became a, a distance running coach, and I, I'm going to do five or six marathons this year and about a dozen halves. And I, I run six to 10 miles at least every other day with my dog. But before I ever ran for the first time in my life, I'd lost all the weight. So the running had nothing to do with the weight loss. What the truth is, is that just by walking my dog for a half an hour, twice a day, I lost all my weight. And then afterwards, 
um, it was as it ex- was explained to me by my uh, naturopathic doctor. You, you know, while the result is going to be about 85 percent, 85, 90 percent the food, you still have to do a minimal amount like light to moderate exercise, which walking a half an hour a day is really all that you need. Otherwise, your metabolism isn't going to work correctly. So by, by walking for a half an hour twice a day, that was all the exercise I needed to, to lose the weight and for my, uh, my BMR to increase and, and just you know my body to work correctly for the first time in my life. But So after I lost the weight, I talked to my ND again, and she said, you know, as far as like uh, a permanent follow-up plan for you to prevent yourself from backsliding into your previous lifestyle, what you need to do is find a form of exercise that is social and involves other people and that, you know, so find a, something you can do that you're not going to hate that involves a community and something that is going to, um, you know, involve other people that you can socialize with. So I did. And I, I thought, okay, what can I do? I didn't want to just kind of go to the gym because that, that's boring. So I, I thought, well, you know, I've heard about running. And if I run, I'm probably going to hate it to start. But after a couple of weeks, I hear that if you force yourself to do it and continue after a couple of weeks, it's like a light switch is flipped on and you go, wow, this isn't so bad. And I not only don't dislike this, but it feels good. And I not only, I no longer want to stop and quit. I want to keep going. And that's exactly what happened. So the first day in trying this, I went out and I ran two miles on a track and the second day I ran three miles and the third day I ran four miles. And PD was like looking at me through the window while this, of the car while I was running around this track. And then I thought, well, what else can I do? So I joined a meetup. I looked on meetup.com and they had a huge amount of running groups locally near me. So I joined a couple of them and I went out and there was this instant community of friends and people that, you know, I learned all the running trails in the Bay Area of Northern California. And just I started doing races and I started running farther and farther and at half marathons and full marathons. And did, did PD participate in any of the runs? No, PD was getting kind of old at that time and he had joint problems, uh-huh. but he, he would, you know, come sometimes and uh, I would be with somebody who would bring him out to the runs and like he would be at the water stops and, you know, he would see me and I would say hi to him and he'd get very excited but what what I experienced as part of that process was the amount of food that I eat when I'm training 50 or 60 miles a week now is completely different from when I had just been walking PD for half an hour twice a day. I went from eating on average maybe 2,500 calories a day to now eating four to 5,000 calories per day. <laughs> And, and, and I, I do that by, you know, eating more nutrient-dense foods than I was eating before, but they're still 100% whole food plant-based. In other words, you, you're, you're now allowed to have nuts and seeds. Completely. So I eat um, eight bags of trail mix, really, that, you know, peanuts, cashews, nuts, walnuts, almonds, et cetera, and, and nuts and seeds and everything else. And, and so here's what I find. On occasion, I get injured, Right. And I can't run. So my running, my physical activity level drops down to, again, that walking my dog for half an hour twice a day. And what I find is that I still gain zero weight when that happens, even though I've gone from an extreme exercise program down to uh, uh, zero exercise other than walking for half an hour twice a day. 
what my weight doesn't fluctuate. What fluctuates is the amount of food that I want to eat. So my, my appetite automatically self-corrects on a whole food plant-based diet down from up to 5,000 calories per day down to 2,500 calories per day. And that happens automatically without effort, without thinking about it, without any portion control or, or thinking, that, well, now I got to eat less. It just, I don't have the desire to eat as much anymore, so I eat less. And therefore, my weight never fluctuates. It goes along with my physical activity, my appetite. Mm, this, that reminds me of a metaphor that I think I first heard from Dr. Joel Furman, where he talked about, you know, your car, that you don't, you don't fill up your tank with gas and then go driving for the purpose of emptying your tank, <laughs> right? That, right. That uh, the, the primary thing is where do you want to go? You know, what kind of activities do you want to power? And then you fill up your tank for those activities. Absolutely. And so I eat my, you know, I, it's, it's an unconscious thing. I don't think about it. I don't think how much am I going to eat today? I just, I'm able, and this is just so wonderful because I'm in sales and, you know, it sounds strange to say I don't like to make appointments. I just kind of like to show up and do things without like a huge amount of administration and bureaucracy going on in my life. And now my food works the same way. I don't need to plan what I'm going to eat or have all this rigid structure. I just eat as much as I want and I eat until I'm hungry. And then I no longer have the desire to eat more. So I stop eating and my weight just completely stays at my optimal weight and it never fluctuates. My weight does not fluctuate by more than uh, uh, two pounds up or down month to month, year to year. Well, I just I recently heard Doug Lyle, who's a co-author of the, the Pleasure Trap, talk about that in terms of like modulating your oxygen levels. Like you don't, you know, you just breathe. You need more, you breathe more. It's, it's, you're saying that eating can be as uncomplicated as that. Absolutely. It's like when I run, uh, depending on how fast I run, I'm going to breathe hard. And if I slow down, I'm going to breathe less, but I'm not focusing on, well, now I got to breathe more. I mean, it's just my body does that automatically. Food works the same way on the whole food plant-based diet. Mm, gotcha. So one, one thing I, I think you may have said this on, the, on your appearance on Rachel Ray, that um, after PD died, you started putting on some weight again? So here's what happened there. And that was the exception to what I just said. So when PD died, I was just, it was such a mental shock and trauma to me. I had such a strong relationship with him. I mean, we, we were connected in the mind. I mean, he, he, would, he would be thinking about doing something that I wouldn't approve of. And I would like just look at him and, and think, don't even think that. And he would then not do that thing. And so when, when he died, it was like my world was gone and shattered. And what happened initially was... I, I really, I took it so hard that I, I started eating. I, I didn't, I mean, I was still vegan, but I started eating, you know, some vegan junk food and I stopped doing any form of exercise because I, you know, I didn't have a dog to walk, yeah, right? You, you were in mourning. Yeah, I was. So I gained about 30 pounds and then I met, um, I was at a doctor's office and one of the receptionists had a picture of a dog that looked just like Petey. And we talked about that and it was her dog and her dog had died recently also. And, you know, that was kind of like her memorial to her dog on her desk. And she said something very profound to me that was like, what's going to happen is your dog is going to help you find a new dog. And when a new dog starts looking for you, you'll know it. And so what happened to me was 
about uh, three months later, I just got this overpowering urge to drive down to, uh, I was living in Seattle at the time, drive to Seattle Humane. And when I walked in, there was Jake and he'd just been put into a pen four minutes earlier. His, his photo wasn't posted anywhere. He wasn't on, uh, they hadn't put him up on the internet. They hadn't even taken his picture yet. He was just in an adoption pen. So I just, we looked at each other and, and seemed to form an immediate bond. And he kind of like cocked his head as if he knew me. And he, he was like, Let, let's get out of here. Hmm. And uh, half an hour later, he was driving home with me. And he is absolutely the perfect dog. Because what I what I'd wanted was a dog that could run really 10 miles a day if needed. And, you know, unfortunately, I feel like I'm holding him back. He wants to maintain a pace about two minutes faster than I can currently run. <laughs> Oh, okay. and I, I, I feel I, like I'm I need holding the, back I need his career, look. seriously. <laughs> yeah, so talk to me about that because I've been looking. You know, I'm now um, training for an ultra, so I'm, I'm going it's like seven miles three times a day and then, you know, the long run on the weekends. Right. I would love uh, a dog, but I've been told by people, like, dogs can't run that far. So here's, um, here's what I, I really lucked out, and, and this is just uh, Jake's an amazing dog. He's a, a Labrador and Rhodesian mix, uh -huh. and Carl Lewis owned Rhodesians, right? So <laughs> they're perfect running dogs, and labs are also ideal running dogs. So if you're running uh, seven miles three times a day, you, you, can, you can train a, a lab to run two of those segments with you per day. Really? Jake, yeah, Jake is totally comfortable and has no problem running a half marathon with me. Ah, okay, so la labs and Rhodesian mixes. <laughs> yeah, so th that's what I'm familiar with. Also, um, uh, Rhodesians, uh, Weimaraners are also a really good choice. They, they, they're they really good long-distance dogs. And you just need to know a couple of basic things about dog training so that you can have a, a really pleasant run with your dog. Have you ever run with a dog before? Um, yeah, I had a, a Leon Burger, uh, which was, that, she was like 120 pounds. Ah, so here's... So after you identify a dog, you're going to break him in slowly. You're going to kind of do a couple of miles the first day, and then you're going to get him up over time to, to distance. But <clears throat> there's, there's, two, there's a couple of key things. First, you're going to connect the leash to the front of him. You, I, you, you're going to get a harness, like a running harness, and a running harness is going to have a clip in the front <clears throat> for the dog because the dog isn't going to want to pull as hard. If you just put like a running uh, like a harness on a dog and you clip him above his shoulders in the back, uh -huh. he he's going to be trying to drag you along. And you can train your dog not to do that, and it's fairly simple to do. What you after you get your dog for the first time, every time he pulls on a leash, you're going to change direction, and that's going to train the dog that he doesn't want to pull. Otherwise, you're going to go the opposite way that he wanted to go. Uh -huh. So they're going to stop pulling and then just run next to you. So there's one way to handle it. But what I wanted to do with uh, with Jake was, he's a there's a sport called ski joring, which is a harness that you connect to the dog, and on um, cross country skis they they pull you across the uh, ski across joring. The yeah, S K I J O R I N G. Huh. So you can get a book on it on Amazon and and ski joring harnesses. So I didn't want to completely uh, uh, train him out of pulling. Because I wanted to do that during the I wanted him to do that during the winter, but I wanted him also to not like really because he labs especially super strong dogs with you know ultra powerful legs, 
you know, when they see water, they can jump sometimes up to 20 feet from a running jump. So I wanted him to, uh, uh, you know, I didn't want to train him out of pulling. So what I figured out the best way to, to do this is you clip him from the front rather than the back. And then it's at most, it's just a gentle pull because for some reason, uh, it's, it's less comfortable to them or they don't like to pull when the, uh, when the resistance is from the front of their body rather than the back of their body. So that, that's the way to do it. Ah, good, good tip. Yeah. So, in, uh, talking about, uh, dogs, t- tell me about, uh, <laughs> Ah, so I'm glad that you read the, uh, the saving Schmulek, uh, thing. So I'm starting a podcast. I've already got a couple of episodes in the can and this is going to, I'm really excited about this. I was approached by a TV station in Israel about Shmulek. And Shmulek is a guy who had the exact, pretty much a mirror of my medical conditions uh, when I started. He's the same exact age as when I started. He was 50, he's 51, he's 330 pounds, and he's got the same litany of health problems. So this TV show was called The Decision. And the gist of the show is that they're trying to get somebody to make like a really important, force somebody into making a really important decision that they have to make uh, that's critical to their life. So Schmulich's decision was whether or not to go ahead with bariatric surgery. And what I've, uh, what I convinced him to do during the show in a, a Skype was I talked him out of getting bariatric surgery and I agreed to mentor him to lose his weight. So his results so far has been amazing, and they're exactly like mine were. He lost 12 pounds the first week. I'm just, you know, giving you some previews because I haven't released the podcast episodes yet. I'm going to release about the first four at the same time. But so he's losing five pounds a week, exactly like I was. And the beautiful thing about where he lives in Israel is that, you know, it's a kind of like a small community. It's eight million people, about the size of New Jersey. Everybody kind of knows each other, and they have the largest uh, vegan population per capita in the world. So mm-hmm. I think they're up to six or 7% vegan population, which is huge. We're 1% in the United States still. So he's got a huge amount of com- community that is getting behind this, this, uh, project that we're on. He's got, you know, all his family and his friends cheering him on. And it's just like wonderful. And these podcast ep- episodes are going to be great. And the capstone to what we're doing is on March in March of 2017, so presuming that he, he stays on this and I have every reason to believe that he will, I'm flying to Jerusalem and on March 17th, 2017, he and I are going to run the Jerusalem Marathon as the capstone to this project. So he's going from 330 down to 190 or below before March of next year and he's going to run his first marathon and, and I'm going to train him how to do this and it's, it's all going to be public. One of the things that I like about him the best is he's like me. He doesn't care if his personal business is on the front page of the internet. And it really kind of motivates him to, to succeed by, by saying, I'm going to do this. And then there's less way he can back out of it. Right. Right. So, so he's like a fascinating conversationalist. And I think that the, uh, the podcast is going to be really successful. And then hopefully I'll be able to find a, a film crew in Jerusalem and maybe make that, uh, the, the second video, you know, the first one was called Eric and Petey, and I don't think I'd want to call the second. So the second video would be the sequel to Eric and Petey, uh, and I want to call it Saving Shmulek. Hmm. Uh, how did an Israeli TV show find you for this? Well, my video had received uh, uh, 50 million views on the Internet worldwide, 
and it became very well known in Israel. And uh, uh, Shmulek had seen it, and he, what he does is he rescues dogs from the streets and shelters in Israel, and then he trains them to be therapy dogs to help uh, emotionally and mentally disabled children. So he's already using dogs, and he's, he's really got the whole dog theme in there. And he saw my video, and he said it was his dream to find a way that his dogs could help him lose weight. And after he saw that I did it with a dog, he knew that he could do it with a dog also. So he really wanted to get in touch with me and ask me. He didn't know how. And unfortunately, as part of this video, I'd, I've received tens of thousands of emails and Facebook uh, messages. And, and sadly, I haven't been able to respond to them all. But so the TV station contacted me and scheduled a, a Skype between me and Shmulek. And they explained the entire thing that they were doing. And, and that's how we connected. And we we've become like pretty good friends since, I mean, it's, it's odd, um, doing all this over the internet, but the guy's a great conversationalist, really super interesting guy. And this is going to be a, a, a great ride, I think. Wow. Boy, I, I kind of want to run that marathon with you. <laughs> well, it's March 17th, 2017th. <laughs> um, I need a film crew if anybody's interested. So anybody who wants to come out and do that, I think, you know, I'm not trying to make money on this. I just want to help the guy out, but, and promote, uh, veganism, but, and, and animal rescue, of course. But anybody that's interested, you know, we're we'd love to have a film crew. All right, let's 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 put it out there. All right, awesome. Um, so, fifty million views—that's that's like that's a big deal. That's like you know, sneezing panda, farting rabbits. I mean, that's that's up there. How has that changed your life? And and how surprised were you when that happened? It was so. We did the film in we did the film in January and. It was released on Valentine's Day. Uh, Wait, January 2016? Yeah, this year. <laughs> Holy cow. Okay. So I had been slowly but surely trying to tell my story over a long period of time, like, you know, doing these like small community meetings, trying to uh, just I have a whole slide presentation. And I, I do this like really compelling story about, okay, here I was and here I am now. And how do I get how did I get there? So I've been trying to promote whole food plant-based diet on my own as an individual effort. Uh, and also at the same time, you know, uh, things, just the wonderful benefits of rescuing dogs. And so I um, was, uh, the place that I adopted Petey from, uh, Humane Society Silicon Valley, was contacted by the Oprah magazine like last in 2015, and they said, Do you know anybody that has a significant life changing story that we could feature in our, our magazine? And they said, Yes, we do. So they connected them because I had maintained uh, contact with them. They connected the Oprah magazine with me. So I had an article come out in the Oprah magazine, a small one, uh, for Thanksgiving of 2015. And then that led to the uh, being contacted about the, uh, the film opportunity. And I said, Yes. And so the film came out. And they sent a film crew, a couple of guys from Chicago who were absolutely amazing. They had like overhead drones and just all this stuff. So the filming was actually, and nothing was scripted. I mean, this was just like reality live, just the words coming out of my mouth. Nothing was planned or rehearsed at all. And so these guys came out and they did this. And it was just like a really wonderful experience. And somehow they edited it all down and they just assembled that thing perfectly. And they added some really nice graphics to it. And it, it came out as a wonderful film. And so it started to take off a little bit. And then it went on 
the website sfgate.com. Uh-huh. And then before we knew it, they had 34 million views just on that one website. And I was being contacted by the Today Show, by NPR, by everybody. And it was just absolutely amazing. So we went on. I have all the different news sources and sites and everything listed on my website at ericandpd.com. And that's just E-R-I-C-A-N-D-P-E-E-T-Y.com. Mm-hmm. And so anybody that's interested can go on there and like look at all this stuff. But it just it it just changed my life overnight. I I got suddenly I was getting thousands and thousands and thousands of emails and and because I've been pretty public about I just my my email address and everything about me is is on the internet easy to find, so uh, you know I got thousands of Facebook friend requests and it just all became really overwhelming. So I now have a an agent and a publicist, which are pretty pretty amazing. I, this week, I'm gonna. I've just uh, accepted and been appointed for as a national spokesperson for the Mutual Rescue Organization, which is the organization that uh, uh, paid for and did the video. So I'm going to be helping them to promote uh, animal rescues. And let me just pitch that really quick, if you don't mind. There are over 13,000 independent animal rescue and humane societies in the United States. And, and a lot of people really want to help animals. And what they do often is they, so they, they don't really have an association with a local rescue or, or humane society. So what a lot of people do is donate money to humane society of the U S or the ASPCA. And while those are wonderful organizations, um, their, their funds primarily are spent on fundraising and lobbying and, and other efforts. And they have no affiliation with the 13,000 independent organizations in the United States that actually save animal lives and help animals on a local basis. So those local organizations are funding themselves on a shoestring, for example, with, uh, you know, they're having bake sales and things like that to try to help animals, where the Mutual Rescue uh, Association that I'm going to be working with is looking to find ways to maybe uh, uh, form like a, a national trade association for all these uh, indiv- individual organizations to try to funnel money uh, down to the local level rather than uh, from the top. Mm-hmm. So wow. that, that's what the plan is there. And so also I am I have many other wonderful things going on in my life right now, like a, a book proposal that I'm working on. And, and just what's been fascinating is this week I've had publisher interviews with six different publishers, I think all the big five. And they all seem really excited. And um, I'm just my agent is is kind of, you know, putting the offers together right now. So I think that you know, so many wonderful things are happening in my life because of PD and the relationship that I formed with him and I was unconscious and I, I became conscious and awake for the first time in my life through the bond that I formed with PD and the whole food plant-based diet that I experienced allows me to see life with now uh, razor sharp mental clarity and my energy is off the charts and I'm going to be 57 this year and I can compete athletically against 25, 30 year olds and I have no doubt that I'll live to be 100 at something. So it's not just about the uh, putting more years on your life. It's about putting more life in your years. And, uh, you know, I, I feel that this combination of things is what I did. So I would urge everybody, all of your listeners, if, if you're in a rut and you feel like you just life's passed you by and, you know, just things starting to suck and you just 
really have no incentive to do anything and you're just kind of waiting to die, go adopt a dog from your local animal shelter and see how much that can change your life. The, the bond that you can form with that dog and also please consider, of course, a whole food plant-based diet. You know, if you think it's scary, there are lots of vegan mentors uh, associations throughout the United States. There, there's people that will help you or you can do like me and look for, absolutely look for a vegan friendly doctor. So if the doctor starts telling you that, well, you know, you need to be in cheese, they don't know what they're talking about and you should find another doctor. Right. And it's, it's, it's so amazing. Actually, I just, uh, recorded another interview two hours ago for the Proteinaholic podcast with a uh -huh. guy who had read Proteinaholic. We were emailing back and forth. And I said, do you mind if I tell your story? Because I love, you know, hearing from readers. And he's like, yeah, but it's just an average story. It's kind of boring. Like, okay. So, you know, I don't know what it is. We get on. And he starts out by saying, well, you know, a couple of years ago, I weighed 315 pounds. And then mm -hmm. I discovered, and I, <laughs> you know, it's like, there are so many, it's, it's obviously incredibly rare still for someone to lose all that weight and keep it off. As, as you know, from the, the biggest loser media fiasco, right. But, you know, that you've done something amazing, but lots of other people have done it. And it's like, what, you know, your entree into the world, into Oprah, into Rachel Ray, into the Israeli TV show, into your book deals has been this dog. It really, it has, because without, without Petey, none of this would happen. I would, not have, I would not have wanted to do something selflessly for another person or another creature, uh, which is what I wanted to do. <clears throat> and, I mean, I went just the, the mental and emotional transformation I went through. And I, this is, I swear this is true. I went from being <clears throat> a Fox News watching uh, person who really only cared about my own self-interest and, you know, was, was worried about what other people were taking from me to somebody who now truly believes that happiness can only be achieved by doing things selfly for other people without any expectation of reward or benefit. Hmm. That's, that's quite a transformation. And I think it's, you know, the, the, to the credit of your uh, naturopathic doctor, to see that what you had inside you, right? Because you you couldn't that was that was like the leap of faith, right? That you could you had that love in you, that you had that regard, you had that selflessness. I don't you didn't think so, but she did. But it was a seed that needed to be watered that I didn't even know was there. Yeah. Wow. Well, I I understand why you're at fifty million and and why it's going to keep uh, expanding exponentially, and why the you know the that the uplifting part of your story around this love of a dog, of, a, of an angel who came to find you is, is the way in, right? It's, it's half of your message, but that gives, I think at, th at that point, then people are able to then hear the other half about living on plants and, and taking care of themselves. And hopefully, um, so yeah, I guess if this is my contribution, this is what I'm rolling with. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's it's amazing, and I can't wait to uh, to hear more about the book. I can't wait to listen to the the Shmulek podcast, and you know, I'm 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 a quarter serious about uh, booking a flight to Jerusalem. I'll see how I, I do on my 50k in October. You should the, do it for sure. 
it's uh, yeah, it's it's going to be life transforming for uh, for Shmulek, and it'll be a great vacation for me. And you know, we'd love to have anybody that wants to show up. Seriously, <laughs> right on. I, I I lived in Jerusalem for a year. I, my my challenge will be running past all the falafel stands. <laughs> You know, it's it's going to be my first time there, but I'm just uh, uh, fascinated with the history and the culture. And, you know, I just really would love to go out there and help support the vegan community. Right on. Well, er- Eric O'Gray, I'm so thrilled and honored to have um, put, th- put this interview in the can. And um, again, your, your website is Eric and Petey. That's P-E-E-T-Y dot com. Yes, sir. Um, the video, you can just go to YouTube and just type in Eric and Petey and it'll, it'll come up or go to SSK. Absolutely. Yeah, and, I have it on my site also. But And also, I've got the Rachel segment on my site as well, if anybody's interested. Right. And uh, do, do not approach this website without tissues handy. <laughs> just thank a, you very a, much. P, a PSA. So, Eric, thank you so much for taking the time today. All right. Thank you very much. And, and let me know when the uh, this is released so I can help publicize it. Okay? I will. Absolutely. Thanks again. All right. Thank you. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Plant Yourself podcast. Be sure to check out the show notes with links to everything that Eric and I talked about at plantyourself.com slash 161. If you're new to the show, you can catch up on 160 archived episodes over at plantyourself.com. And if you get the podcast, but not the weekly email newsletter, go to plantyourself.com and sign up top right. I include links to original articles. I share recent episodes of my weekly Tribe Well TV show. This month, I'm talking about how and why to talk to your doctor about your health care. And also this week and next week and the week after, I'm uh, including a special offer in the email newsletter. That's to help people uh, jump the hurdle and, and get on it. And the special offer is to join uh, for free for a month my Healthy Habit Huddles. And I do three of them a month on what days? On Monday mornings, 10 a.m. Eastern Time for an hour. And it's uh, a group of us getting together and talking about how to instill healthy habits in our lives. It's uh, me doing teaching and answering questions. So if you'd like to join for a month for free, just head over to plantyourself.com, sign up for the newsletter, and in the weekly newsletter that comes out for this episode or next one or maybe the one after that, that offer will be in there and you can sign up. You don't need a credit card. There's no obligation. I'm not going to you know, suddenly start charging you because you've forgotten about it. Nothing like that. If you're in the Detroit area and you've downloaded this early on its release date, June 28th, I'll be speaking tonight for the Plant-Based Nutrition Support Group You can check out their website, pbnsg.org, for plantbasednutritionsupportgroup.org, to find out more and buy tickets. Big thanks to Plant Yourself Podcast patrons Kim Harrison, Lynn McClellan, Anthony Disson, Brittany Porter, Dominic Morrow, Elizabeth Clifton, Barbara Whitney, Tammy Black, Amy Good, Amanda Hatherly, Mary Jane Wheeler, Ellen Kennelly, Melissa Cobb, Rachel Behrens, Kristen Nielsen, Tina Scharf, Tina Ahern, Jen Vilkanovsky, David Bizek, and the mysterious Michelle X for your generous support of the podcast. If you would like to support this show, you can share this in other episodes on social media via email. You can write a review on iTunes. Man, that helps a lot. Can't tell you how much it helps. And you can become a patron by pledging some amount, one time or ongoing, to the podcast over at plantyourself.com. I used to think of it as like a donation. I don't anymore because I feel like it's karma. Like if you're getting a lot of value out of the podcast 
and you want to give me some money, like it's a nice gift back. It's not uh, a donation. I don't feel like I'm, I'm begging here. So uh, be that as it may. Next week on the podcast, I talk with Dr. Michael R. Edelstein, a clinical psychologist and protege of Albert Ellis, who was one of the giants of 20th century psychology. And we discuss Dr. Edelstein's work helping people overcome procrastination and addiction using an incredibly quick and simple and powerful tool um, in the CBT, Cognitive Behavioral Therapy uh, Arsenal. And it's so quick, in fact, that his book is called Three Minute Therapy and his website is threeminutetherapy.com. In garden news, the garden survived a hailstorm attached to a tornado warning that didn't materialize into an actual tornado on our property. The blueberries are ripening slowly and there's nothing like seeing a dozen ripe berries a day amid a sea of hard, green, unripe ones. It's a, a delicious paradox, all this scarcity in the middle of abundance or Perhaps it's the other way around. In any case, we're grateful today for the promise of a nourishing tomorrow. Well, that's it for this week. So as always, be well, my friends. All right, time for thanks. Thanks to Will Ridenauer for allowing me to use his beautiful song, Sabali Dawn, The Dance of Peace. You can find more of Will's music at his website, willridenauer.com. And of course, thanks to all of you Plant Yourself Podcast patrons. Kim Harrison, Lynn McClellan, Anthony Disson, Brittany Porter, Dominic Maurer, Barbara Whitney, Tammy Black, Amy Good, Amanda Hatherley, Mary Jane Wheeler, Ellen Kennelly, Mr. Cobb, Rachel Behrens, Christine Nielsen, Tina Sharp, Tina Ahern, Jennifer Kinoski, David Bizek, The Mysterious, Michelle X, Elspeth Feldman, Leah Stoller, Alan Christensen, Colleen Peck, Michelle Landry, Josina, Sarah Durkis, Rhymes of Circus, Kelly Cameron, Wayne Pedersen, Janet Selby, Janet Selby, Janet Selby, hi Janet, Claire Adams, Tom Franzek, Jeanette Benham, Gil David Donahue, Blair Cyber, Dorona Vizov, Gio and Carl, Carolyn Argentati, Jody Friesen, Ruth Ann Funderburg, Misha Rosen, Michael Warbeck, the equally mysterious Tracy Z, Aviva Lael, Alicia Lemus, Rebecca Hughes, Val Lineman, Rhymes with Cinnamon, Nick Harper, Martha Bergner, Susan Ahmad, Nolly Levine, the inscrutable Harry R., Susan Laverty, the Panda Vegan, Craig Kovic, Adam Sharp, Karen Burry, Heather Morgan, Kelly Machia, Dean Norton, Bonnie Lynch, Plant Happy Oregon, Sabina Kurtzels, Nigel Davies, Marion Blum, Teresa Cobble, Julian Rodkins, Breed O'Connell. Shannon Hirschman, Linda Ayat, Holm Hedegaard, Izatuzin Connie Hainline, Aaron Greer, Alicia Davis, Heather O'Connor, Carolyn Jensen, Sherry Olakoski of Plant Power for Health, Karen Smith, Scott Marani, Karen Joe Crabtree, Tanya Lewis, Kirby Burton, Teresa Carell, Kevin McCauley, Elizabeth Rothschild, Dan Jesse, Cheryl Dwyer, Jenny Hazleton, Valerie Peltier, Peter W. Evans, Colleen Harrison, Justin Divich, Ashra Summermeyer, Dennis Bird, Darby Kelly, Lori Fanny, Linnea Lundquist, Valerie Hummel, Emily Iaconelli, Levy Wallach, Rosamund McAtee, Dan Bacorny, Stephen Lehman, Patty DiMartino, Mike and Donna Karts, Dean Bishop, Bill Brielf, Gunter Schmidt, Marjorie Lewis, Kelly Molden, Trisha Adams, and Kramer, Nancy Sheldon, Lindsay Bayshore, Gunmarie Hagen, Tracy Gulledge, Laura Heaton, Meg from Mama Says, Rochelle Kennedy, Diana Goldman, Stacey Stokes, Ben Savage, Michael Kay, Holly Butler, David Hughes, Connie Rogers, Claire England, Sally Robertson, Parham Ganshik, Amy Daly, Brian Tourville, Mark Jeffrey Johnson, Josie Dempsey, Karen Schmidt, Pamela Hayden, Emily Perryman, Olga Sidorowska, Allison Corbett, Richard Stone, Lauren Vaught of Edible Musings, Aaron Hasty, Sean Owen, Sagar Nayak, Erica Piedra, Danielle Roberts, Michael Lushton, and Sarah Johnson for your generous support of the podcast. That's it for now. As always, be well, my friends. <laughs>